On our previous episode, we explored the world of horror weaved by Robert Block. As mentioned in the episode, Block had been mentored by legendary surreal horror author H.P. Lovecraft, whom you can hear more about on episode 23. Passing the gift forward, Block would mentor and help the author we are diving into today. Like Block, Dallas Mayer, who is better known under his pseudonym Jack Ketchum, would specialize in psychological horror. Their relationship would strengthen his interest and work in the subgenre, and would ultimately result in a career that would span four decades with several novels, numerous pieces of nonfiction, and short stories under his belt. He is rightfully hailed as a true horror master, and is the writer whom Stephen King referred to as probably the scariest writer in America. So with the Halloween season nearing its apex, we decided to go deep into the darker side of human existence and explore one of the more extreme and intense horror novels in pop culture, as well as the story which inspired it. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, torture, and true horrors. I am your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. Apply my ass to a chair, to keep your sense of humor intact at all costs. Try to be generous to young writers. Taken from one of many lessons Mayer got from Robert Block. Jack Ketchum was born on November 10, 1946 as Dallas William Mayer. Alone and being an only child on his block, he found it difficult to socialize and soon became what he would refer to as a loner. This loneliness, as it has with many other creative individuals, would cultivate a great fantasy, one that would manifest itself in writing. Being fascinated by horror movies since an early age, he was in the pristine position of being responsible for which magazines his father would order into his store and set up on the racks. Naturally, Young Ketchum chose many magazines which revolved around horror culture, and reading all the magazines, he became well-informed and even more ingrained in the genre. He began writing stories in his teens. Around this same time, his English teacher, in an attempt to inspire his class, instructed his pupils to write a letter to their favorite author to see if they received anything in return. To everyone's surprise, most of all the teachers all 30 students received something from their selected author. Mayer had chosen the author of Psycho, Robert Block, as his author to write to, and while others received a small note or a postcard, Dallas received an entire letter from Block. He was a somewhat troubled kid at the time, and his future wasn't guaranteed to be a bright one. Later in life, he credited his childhood love of Elvis Presley, dinosaurs, and horror for getting him through his formative years. Long before this admission, however, his mother, worried about her son's future, noticed how the letter from Robert Block had impacted him and saw it was a great opportunity to push her son closer toward the realm of writing. She encouraged him to write a thank you letter to Block, and the youngster obliged. Unbeknownst to him, his mother also wrote to Robert Block, 
telling him how she was worried that her son could be on the verge of making bad choices in life and asked if Block would be so kind to encourage the teenager in the right direction. Block agreed to help. So from then on, everything Mayer sent, which was everything from poems to one-act plays to stories and nonfiction, Block did what Lovecraft had done for him and did his best to critique the pieces and provide advice. Occasionally, Block would receive a piece from him that he did not feel he was able to critique on account of his lack of expertise in the field, such as poems. On those occasions, he'd reply strictly as a reader, stating whether he was moved or not by the piece. With longer pieces, however, he'd get deep into the details about characters and motivation. Having been asked by Mayer's mother never to tell her son about their interaction, Block kept his word until after her death. Mayer would recall the first piece of advice that Block ever gave him, which was, If you don't have to write, don't. It's a hell of a job. If you do, give it all you've got. Later, Block would tell the young aspiring writer that a writer must always know where he's going with the piece before he puts the first word down. By this, Block didn't mean that one had to know the entire plot necessarily or all the twists and turns, or even the exact ending. What he meant was that one should know what one wants the reader to feel at the end. Like many artists trying to find their way into making a living from their art, he had numerous professions, actor, teacher, literary agent, lumber salesman, and soda jerk among them. Before he turned to writing novels, he sold a prolific number of short fiction and articles to magazines. His initial pen name, Jersey Livingston, came about during this period. Because he often had more than one piece published in a specific magazine, he would use his own name for the first byline and then adopt pseudonyms for the others. He came from Livingston, New Jersey, and at the time had been reading work by the author Jersey Kosinski. I like the in-joke, hence Jersey Livingston, he explained. Another pseudonym would soon arrive, one that would become synonymous with horror. Around the time he wrote his first novel, Off Season, Dallas had been working as a literary agent for about three years. He had grown tired of constantly reading other writers' novels and concluded that if he was able to sell some of the stories which he considered garbage to publishers, he could probably sell his own as well. So he pretended to have discovered this new guy called Jack Ketchum. He told Ballantyne that he loved this guy's novel and thought it could be something for them. On a personal level, he figured that the pseudonym would help him shield his family from the extreme violence in off-season. After the novel was published and sold quite well, he figured that people who bought his book would be looking for the new Ketchum novel instead of the new Mayer novel. Thus, he decided to keep the name. Quote, Our moods and emotions are often triggered by our surroundings. I dare you to stand on a mountaintop and feel claustrophobic. It isn't possible. You're much more likely to feel freedom, openness, expensiveness. Likewise, basements, attics, closed-off spaces tend by their nature to pin us in, make us feel smaller. Your spirit can't soar in a basement. End quote. 
It seems fitting that the girl next door came to him during a personal tragedy. His mother had recently died, which meant that nearly every weekend that followed, he would take a bus from New York back to his New Jersey home, where he'd grown up, to sell the house, deal with belongings, and generally settle her affairs. Revisiting his past on a weekly basis inspired him, and he realized that his next piece would be a blend between his childhood during the 1950s and another story which had impacted him greatly, the true and very tragic story of Sylvia Likens. He remembered living on Royal Avenue, a dead-end street at the time, and the isolation that existed there. Only a handful of homes lined the block. It was a place where everybody knew everybody, and everybody had their not-so-secret secrets. It might have seemed to the grown-ups that the children didn't know of any of the nefarious things going on behind closed doors, but Mayer knew that that was not the case. He decided to dig deeper into that concept of secrets, in particular, secrets kept by children. But before we continue, let me first give a somewhat brief description of the true horror story which inspired a large part of the novel. Now, before we go on, I want to warn you that the following part might be distressing to certain listeners. The year was 1965. A girl known as Cookie to her family, Sylvia Marie Likens, was at the age sweet 16. Sylvia loved roller skating and the Beatles. That same year, she met Paula and Stephanie Bonasiewski at school. Months later on June 3, 1965, Sylvia's mother was arrested for shoplifting. Now, since the Likens and Bonasiewski girls got along so well, Sylvia's father decided to send her and her sister Jenny to live with Gertrude Nadine Bonasiewski while he traveled as a concession salesman. He agreed to pay $20 each week for their board and care. Now, Gertrude Bonasiewski had had a rough life with her fair share of failed marriages, and by 1965, she was living alone with her seven children. After approximately two weeks, the $20 payments failed to consistently arrive upon the prearranged dates, typically only one or two days late, but late. In response, Gertrude began venting her frustration on the Lycan sisters by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments, such as a quarter-inch thick paddle. By mid-August, Gertrude had begun to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of the girl's youth, appearance, respectability, and potential. This abuse included subjecting Likens to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of garbage cans. Soon, Gertrude's oldest children began to participate in the beatings. As if this wasn't enough, schoolmates of Likens also began to frequently visit the Bonasiewski residence to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, often collaborating with Gertrude and her oldest children. Fear of increasing abuse and neglect was the primary reason that neither Sylvia nor Jenny dared notify either family members or adults at their school. Now, Jenny, in particular, struggled against the urge to notify family members, as she had been threatened by Gertrude that she would herself be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did so. The Likens' parents, with the mother being out of jail after a short stay, would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. 
During the last occasion their parents visited their daughters in October of 1965, neither girl exhibited any physical signs of distress about their mistreatment. This was likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Almost immediately after the Lycan's parents had left, Gertrude turned to Sylvia and said, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. Due to the increase in the frequency and brutality of the torture and mistreatment Sylvia was subjected to, she gradually became incontinent. She was denied any access to the toilet. As punishment for basically wetting herself, Gertrude threw Sylvia into the basement where she was tied up, often kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Occasionally, she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. Curious neighborhood children were charged five cents apiece to see the display of Sylvia's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and mutilate her. Throughout her captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Sylvia before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water and proceeded to rub salt into her wounds. On another occasion, Gertrude began carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, onto Sylvia's abdomen with a heated needle. Unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children, 14-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, to finish etching the words into her flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. In what Hobbs would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into her abdomen as she clenched her teeth and moaned. That night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. By the morning of October 26th, Sylvia was unable to either speak intelligibly or correctly coordinate her limbs. Gertrude moved Sylvia to the kitchen and having propped her back against a wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. Unable to move the glass of milk to her lips, Gertrude threw her to the floor. She was then returned to the basement. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's other tormentors gathered in the basement. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs returned to the residence and entered the basement where he was confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean her. Stephanie and Richard then decided to give her a warm, soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her daddy was here and that Stephanie would take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, saying, Oh, she'll be all right. Now, soon thereafter, when Stephanie realized that Sylvia was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation as Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that she was faking her death. Tragically, Sylvia Likens would never see her 17th birthday, and she finally succumbed to her injuries that evening. The autopsy of her body revealed that she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. On December 30, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude Bonasewski and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Bonasewski, Jr. Also indicted 
were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. For a while, Dallas Mayer considered traveling to Indianapolis to further research the case and possibly write a true crime novel surrounding it. But not knowing anything about Indianapolis, he kept postponing the trip. After revisiting his own childhood neighborhood following his mother's death, he decided to set the setting there with children he had known and grown up with. While writing the novel, he was very aware that he was treading a very thin line between portraying the material and exploiting it. He had to make a decision between making the reader turn for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons. That is, whether to exploit the true events for their sensationalism or use it as a means to tell an important story. I would argue that he chose the latter. His choice of a young boy as a narrator was also a very conscious decision. It gave the chance to look away from the torture that young Sylvia suffered through and allowed him to build a more nuanced story. Since the boy narrator is a man when he tells the story, it also gave way to deeper reflection. An interesting aside is that Mayer did not like the first cover of the novel, which is a dancing skeleton in a cheerleader uniform. He felt it was too close to R.L. Stein book covers in style and could attract the wrong kind of audience. Concerning his writing routine, he described it as erratic in a 2017 interview saying, If I'm working on a long piece, I write every day for about three hours before I go brain dead. Revisions I can take six or seven. He commented on a different interview that at one time he could go for longer, but that was when he was younger. His routine would start off with reading for an hour right after waking up in the morning. He would then answer emails and then get to writing. In order to write productively, he needed complete silence, excluding music as well. Coffee and the occasional cigarette, however, were mandatory. He was also good at taking long holidays from doing any writing at all. He would say, like John D. McDonald's Travis McGee, I score a good one and then lay fallow for a while. He would compare writing a book to a marriage and a novella or a screenplay to an affair, while a short story was more like a one-night stand. You don't have to prep much for a one-night stand, he would say. Normally what will happen with a short is that I'll get an idea, sit on it a while, could be days, could be years, and then another idea will come along that fits somehow with the first one and maybe a third, and voila, a short story. Though he was dedicated to writing in complete silence, he saw good prose writing being a lot like music. In an interview, he said, The sounds of the words, lines, and paragraphs as they strike the ear of your perception as you read them. So I tried different sounds, different rhythms. I tried to race you, lull you, sometimes into a false sense of security, and then maybe hit you with the kettle drum all of a sudden. I think it's also important to pay attention to the starts and stops. When the sounds stop, at the end of a chapter, a section of a chapter, or at the actual end of the story. I want the silence that follows to have a resonance, to stay with you like a tune you can't quite let go of, because usually that's when you have your best chance to contemplate the meaning of the thing. 
Being a former editor, he got good at getting over the troubles surrounding murdering your children. That is to say, remove pieces that you might be attached to, but knowing your heart and mind that aren't necessary or not what is best for the story you are trying to tell. His partner and best friend, which he lived with for decades, was his first reader. When she gave him the go-ahead, he knew he was ready to submit the story. Following the publication of The Girl Next Door, Dallas Mayer continued to publish several books, many of which, along with The Girl Next Door, have been made into movies. These include Red, The Lost, Offspring, and The Woman. Mayer, well, Ketchum, won the Bram Stoker Award four times. Two of those awards were won in 1994 and 2000, while the other two were both in 2003. He also won the World Horror Convention's Grand Master Award, which is handed out to those who have made great contributions to horror writing. During his time on this earth, Mayer followed in the tradition of his mentor, Robert Block, and saw it as his responsibility to help other up-and-coming writers. When asked if he replied to letters or comments, he answered that he did to the extent as his time permitted, and did so happily. He would say, if you like to read, you've got to promote reading and writing and the younger writers who are going to provide the new pages long after you're gone, or are providing them right now. He would then add, and I suspect that's how Bob, referring to Robert Block, thought too. Dallas Mayer, the man better known as Jack Ketchum, succumbed to cancer at the age of 71 on January 24, 2018, but left behind a legacy of horror to be reckoned with. I will now leave you with one last quote to end this episode from one of the true horror masters of modern literature. I figure if I don't scare myself, if I don't feel that dread of what's coming up next, I probably won't scare you. But the same is true of any emotion or feeling I try to get down right on the page. If I'm doing comedy, I damn well better make myself laugh. If I'm doing tenderness, I want to feel that too. I want to bleed a little. That way, the feeling comes through to you. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, have a bibliorific Halloween and keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez, narrated and edited by me, Jason Nemore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden.